This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and today on This Working Life, we're doing one of my favourite things. We're bringing curiosity to one of the wicked problems of our current working lives. Emails. Someone who's thought deeply about this is Cal Newport. Cal's an Associate Professor of Computer Science at Georgetown University, but you may know him from his best-selling books, Deep Work and Digital Minimalism. Cal's latest book is World Without Email, Reimagining Work in an Age of Communication Overload. G'day, Cal. Thanks for having me on. Well, this title, A World Without Email, (laughs) you're not actually arguing that we dispense with email altogether, are you? No, I'm not. Uh, I'm actually arguing for dispensing with a mode of collaboration that I call the hyperactive hive mind that email enabled. But for some reason, my publisher wouldn't let me call the book A World Without the Hyperactive Hive Mind Workflow that Email Enabled. They, they thought that didn't quite roll off the dug. So we went with the simpler A World Without Email. But I'm really letting that word do a lot of work here. Well, we've got to ask you about this hyperactive hive mind. How do you define that and why is it bad? Well, it's a it's a mode of collaboration in which you work most things out with back and forth unscheduled messages. So email made this possible because now we had this low friction digital communication tool so we could start to just shoot messages back and forth to figure things out. When should we meet? What do you think about this client request? Do you remember where the conference is going to be next week? It's back and forth constant ad hoc, unscheduled messaging. One of my big arguments against this as a mode of collaboration is that it requires that we service all these messages. And that in turn requires a lot of cognitive context shifting. We have to keep switching our attention from the messages to our work to the messages to our work. And our brains simply cannot switch that rapidly. And why is this bad in terms of how our brains are actually wired? So it turns out if you want to switch your brain from one target of attention to another, this probably takes around 10 or 15 minutes to fully do. There's a lot of actual effort happening in our brain to inhibit some semantic networks and to excite other networks and to change the context of what we're thinking about. When you glance at an inbox, you initiate such a change because these messages have completely different context than what you're working on in the moment. But if you're just glancing at the inbox, when you turn your attention back to the thing you were working on, you're aborting that context shift, trying to come back to the original cognitive context, and you get a pile up in your brain. And the effect is you can't think clearly about anything that you're working on, and it creates that sense of fatigue and anxiety. We're just not meant to rapidly go back and forth between different, quite uh, varied cognitive contexts. How much are we actually checking, Cal? Well, it depends what research you want to look at. One data set I like to cite that comes from the software company Rescue Time found that the 20,000 knowledge workers they observed were checking their inbox once every six minutes on average. If the office used Slack, that actually becomes a shorter interval. Uh, Another bit of data I saw said the average knowledge worker is now sending or receiving 126 messages a day. So, Depending on how you want to look at it, you're still going to come up with the same answer, which is we're checking our inboxes or chat basically constantly. And can we bring this to life a little bit? So let's look at the workflow then of someone who is back and forthing about a meeting that they need to have. Can you talk us through so that we can truly understand the limitations of this autonomy where we are doing things as individuals? 
Well, I, I love this example because it's common, but it also uh, underscores it, the cognitive cost of this ad hoc unscheduled mode to, to communication. So just take something like you, you suggested that we're trying to set up when we're going to have a meeting to prepare for a client that's coming in. Now, let's say we're in a typical knowledge work office. We're just going to shoot some messages back and forth to try to figure out what's the right time to meet. Now, let's say this takes in the end five back and forth messages to figure out. Here's the problem. I have to see those messages pretty soon after they arrive because we have to figure out this meeting this afternoon, the client's coming. So I can't wait three hours, then come see where's your last message because we have to get through five back and forth to arrive at a time. So I might end up checking my inbox, let's say 10 times for each of these messages that comes through before I finally see it. So now this one simple thing, let's figure out when to meet tomorrow has generated 50 inbox checks. Each of those inbox checks requiring us to shift our cognitive context from our work to something completely unrelated. And then you multiply that by the two or three dozen concurrent asynchronous interactions that are happening at the same time. And you can, you can start to realize why we basically just end up constantly looking at these channels and never having a moment of our brain actually being still on one thing. Cal, what led you to take on this forensic exploration of email? Well, certainly that book, Deep Work, and the concept of deep work is what eventually gave rise to this new work on email. And the basic idea there was that unbroken concentration, where you can just focus on one thing for a while real hard without having to switch your attention back and forth to anything else, was really powerful. And that in the knowledge economy, as it got increasingly sophisticated, increasingly competitive, deep work would become more and more important This, of course, led to the natural follow-up question. If it's so important, why have we contrived to make office life something in which it's basically impossible? (laughs) So that became the question that led to the new book. The challenge, I think, that you're actually saying to us is quick fixes aren't the answer. Why aren't quick fix stunts the answer? So I'm talking batching, maybe, the uh, Fridays off emails, (laughs) turning off notifications. Well, we've tried it. We've tried it for about 15 years now. As best as I can tell, email overload became something we talked about a lot by around 2004, 2005. For most of the period since then, we have been trying what you call a quick fixes. In, in other words, we've been putting the focus on the individual and saying, you're doing email wrong. Do email smarter. And that's where we start talking about, don't check it all the time, batch it or write better email messages or stop having such expectations that you need to respond right away. You have wrong expectations. Uh, These type of solutions, or maybe you're addicted to email. That's why you're checking it so much. But once we recognize that the real problem is the hyperactive hive mind workflow, and that as long as that is implicitly how you collaborate in your office, you have to check these inboxes all the time because these back and forth conversations is how work is actually happening. To be away from your inbox actually slows down work. It's like an aha moment because you can conclude, oh, I see. I don't need to fix my relationship with the inbox. We have to actually replace the hyperactive hive mind so all of those messages aren't showing up in the inbox for in the first place. Well, is there a bit of a tension here? Because you write about the work of Peter Drucker, the famous management consultant who coined the term knowledge worker and professed that knowledge workers actually need autonomy. You know, I think this is a big reason why the hyperactive hive mind has persisted even though it makes us miserable and makes us terribly (laughs) unproductive, is because we have this legacy of Peter Drucker, this legacy of autonomy. Now, here's the thing. He was right to say that in knowledge work as compared to industrial work, 
The individual worker needs more autonomy in terms of how they execute what they do because it's creative, because it's skilled, because they often know more about what they're doing than the managers above them. You cannot break most knowledge work down into an assembly line. Yeah. There's no assembly line for producing ad copy. There's no assembly line for writing the right computer algorithm. So he was really trying to push that message mid-century when we were first trying to come to grips with what knowledge work was. The issue is we generalize that claim too much. So we said, not only are we going to leave how you execute your work up to you as an individual, we're also going to leave how you organize your work up to you. You know, decisions about like what you say yes to and how you keep track of work and when and how you work on the work, that's all personal. Productivity is personal. And I think it is in that environment in which we leave all decisions about how work is organized for the most part up to the individual, we end up in these lowest common denominator, highly flexible, highly convenient, highly fast, but highly ineffective answers such as the hyperactive hive mind. Also, I don't think we're bringing consciousness to the way we work. It just kind of happens, doesn't it? And that's the problem. Well, and again, the autonomy of Drucker, that idea helps lead to this haphazard nature of knowledge work, which really is, I think it's a really important point to emphasize, it really is a pretty haphazard sector of our economy. If you go into a factory, by contrast, they've really thought through a lot of things. <laughs> you know, what is the right way? What's the right machinery to have here? What's the right speed to run it at? How quickly do we want to move pieces from A to B? And they really think a lot about how do we want to actually do the work of building things. Knowledge work, by contrast, is incredibly haphazard. It's, look, we get some smart people together, we connect them up to some really fast communication channels, so they have information and they have connection, and then we just say, do some work. And it's from that autonomous haphazardness that I think we end up at some sort of suboptimal consensus about how we actually uh, get our things done. So where do you take us from there then? What could we possibly do to get around this um, problem? So now we know if the hive mind's the problem, replacing the hive mind is going to be the solution. So that's the good news. We know what we're trying to do. The bad news is there's no one-size-fits-all solution. There's not a different tool. As much as the software companies want this to be true, there's not a tool that you just replace email with and then you're fine. There's not a fancy bit of software that's going to take care of all your collaboration processes. We actually have to go through thing after thing that we do on a regular basis in our team or in our organization and actually ask, how do we want to do this collaboration? Where should the information reside? When do we talk about it? How do we talk about it? At what time do we talk about it? What forms do we use to talk about it? Uh, when do we coordinate on the different steps that have to happen? Where do we keep track of those steps? And actually come up with answers that are more specific than just, hey, we'll rock and roll on email. So when it comes to like that meeting example, we might think about that and say, you know, we probably need to use some sort of shared calendar or scheduling web app that would allow us to set up meetings with one message. It's a pain to set up and it maybe has some rough edges on it, but I don't want to do 50 context shifts every time uh, a meeting has to be set up. So there's a solution for just that particular process. And then you have to look at thing after thing and say, for the first time, let's talk out loud about how we actually want to do this work. And it's going to take experimentation and it's going to take buy-in and it's going to take cultural change. It's kind of complicated. You need from the very top of the organization, the top executive saying, this is what we're doing. You have our blessing. We need from the actual teams that will be implementing and living with these processes and workflows. They have to be coming up with it themselves because only they know the actual work they have to face. We have to be ready for there to be 
protocols in between different departments and groups about here is how you talk to us. You can't just shoot an email to anyone you know on our team. We have protocols for how you interact for us when you have requests or questions or want to set things up. All of this creates overhead. All of this creates friction. All of this is going to enable occasionally small bad things to happen. But I think it's also going to make everyone much happier and a lot better work is going to get done. And in my experience working with businesses, I can also see everyone just running rapidly in all directions and not taking the time to sit down and work through these things together. So what would your reaction be to that? How would you encourage people to take the time? Well, one of the issues is we have too much to do. <laughs> it's actually, it's a, it's a negative feedback cycle. When we have too much to do, we don't have enough time to figure out the right way to do it, and the load gets even higher, right? So mm. it's actually in periods of overload that we drift most severely away from structure. This is what for sure happened during the uh, pandemic-related remote work sessions, right, is that we, we shifted remote, which made the hyperactive hive mind more hyperactive because now everything was virtual. But at that exact same time, we dropped a lot more work onto our plate because we also had to figure out, in addition to our normal work, all of these questions about how we actually are going to run our company if we're all remote. So the hyperactive hive mind got more hyperactive and we got a lot more work all of a sudden. So we didn't have any time to step back and say, now that we're remote, is there a better way we want to do this? And we ended up sort of with the worst of both worlds. So I sort of think if you're going to try to make these changes, acknowledge they're going to take time. And it's going to take attention and you want to pull things off people's plates. We need breathing room to actually sit back and think through how is this going to work? We can't do this in small little interstices that show up in brief moments between an otherwise crowded day. Do you have an example of someone who has instituted some workflow changes to give us a bit of inspiration? <laughs> well, I profiled a few small companies in the book so that we wouldn't, we wouldn't feel too hopeless. I mean, it was certainly the <laughs> joke I had with my publisher that a book called A World Without Email was going to get filed in the fantasy section at the bookstore. <laughs> so we, we have to give people some hope. Uh, but there are examples, and they tend to be, for now, smaller companies or smaller teams that have some flexibility. But one company I talk about was a marketing company. We're talking about a dozen people. Uh, it was run, this founder and, and CEO, his name is Devish. And he got completely overloaded with all this email. The context shifting was draining him. They moved everything over to Trello, actually. So this is a, a web-based software where you have cards on a board and the cards are in columns. So like the columns correspond to statuses and cards have tasks on them or information on them. But they created one Trello board for every client. And everything relevant to that client was on that board. Like, okay, here's the notes from our last calls or on cards on the board. Here's the features that we told them we're going to do. Here's the work that's done. Here's what, who's working on what. You can have a different column for different people. And the way he explained it to me is one of the biggest reliefs here is that when you are working on one client, that's all you are seeing. You weren't in an inbox where you were also seeing emails about six other clients and also from the HR department and also from your building landlord. It was when you're working on one client, you're on the board for just that client. All you were thinking about is that client. All of the work was on the board really clear. You would work on things on the board. You'd update the board and say, I'm done with that client. What's next? And he said, that sounds like a simple change. But it was night and day when it came to the amount of relief he felt, how, how much calmer his day felt, how much less anxious he was, how much clearer he was. So change is possible if you're willing to go through a little bit of a pain to get there. 
Now, the good thing about you, Cal, is as we say in Australia, you eat your own dog food. So you <laughs> also uh, put into practice the things that you espouse. So can you share um, uh, one of your workflows um, and how you organise yourself? Well, I think something that makes myself a good example is that the different things I do that need workflows changes a lot. You know, maybe I have a book coming out that completely changes what's on my plate. Maybe I have an administrative role for the semester at my university that completely changes. So my work is always changing. So I'm constantly having to go through this thought process of what are my new workflows? How can I optimize them? Uh, so How often are you doing that, Cal? Well, as, as often as they change. So that's oh. at least every semester, my life looks quite different. So if we go back a, a year or so when I was uh, on book tour for this book or promoting this book, a workflow that came up is how am I going to work with my publicist to work with setting up interviews and various other things we had to do. And we created a system using shared documents for the height of the, the publicity tour where she would put into the document under a, a particular heading, okay, here's things that are coming up that need to be booked and uh, either here's a scheduling link or here's their constraints. And then once a day, I would go on there and look through everything, look at my calendar, and I would update the document and I'd move it to a section of things I process like, okay, I can do this one this way, this one, this one, I can't do this one. Uh, and then she would update it a final time with all of the information for the interviews. All of this was happening without any emails, right? And it's an example of a workflow where what we did before is just email each other all day. At some point I said, I can't, I mean, I, I really enjoy you, but I can't just email with you all day because it's creating context shifts all day long. And, you know, I still have another job and I'm a professor. And so it's just an example of a little thing, but we put in place an alternative workflow, not to make things easier, not to make things as fast as possible, but to reduce the amount of times either of us had to keep checking an inbox waiting for a message to arrive. You've been very convincing as to why this could be a big problem, but I'm curious if it does save all of this time and money, why aren't organizations doing this, Cal? I think the two biggest obstacles has been, one, this culture of autonomy that we're talking about. We just are not in the habit yet in knowledge work of thinking organizationally about things like organizing work, talking about work, collaborating about work. Uh, knowledge worker productivity, for the most part up to now, has really focused on software systems. You know, software systems that makes it easier to find information and reduces the friction of communication. So we really haven't had a culture of thinking seriously about these type of workflows yet. So I think that's mm. one obstacle. The other is, even as we start to think about it, it's a giant pain. <laughs> it, it really is a pain to get away from what's simple, what's flexible, what's convenient. It's, you know, why in the book I tell the story it's a, a rough analogy to the industrial sector. And I talked about the rise of the continuous motion assembly line that was innovated by Henry Ford. And in retrospect, it makes a lot of sense. If you're building cars, the assembly line is 10x more uh, effective or more productive. It, it required a factor of 10 fewer man hours to produce each Model T. But if you actually dive into the story of how they got from the way they were building cars before, which was very natural and flexible and convenient to this assembly line, it was a gigantic pain. And it was hard to make work and it cost a ton of money and Ford had to hire a bunch more managers and it had to invent new technology and it would break all the time at first. And his investors were probably yelling in his ear, Ford, what are you doing? Right. And I think this is a, uh, the case again and again, when we shift to ultimately better ways of doing whatever it is we're trying to do in a work context, it's often more complicated and more annoying. So we, we do have this pain threshold 
we have to get past or be willing to get past because there's a lot of different things we do in work. And it's really easy when every single one of those things can be dealt with by just hitting that send button on Slack or typing into the CC field on an email inbox. So we have to get away from something that's very, very convenient and easy if we ultimately want to preserve our sanity and uh, incredibly quickly increase the rate at which we can produce the sort of knowledge work equivalent of Model T's. And Cal, in your research for your books, you interview a lot of C-suite executives. What's been the response uh, when you've proposed this radical rethink of work processes to reduce our reliance on emails? I would say it has shifted markedly between 2016, when I was talking to these type of executives about deep work, and now in 2021, when I've been talking with them about email. For example, I just had a call recently with, with I think, something like 100 top CIOs from American Fortune 500 companies, they are much more receptive to this idea now than they were five years ago. So I think something is shifting. Five years ago, we began to recognize, oh, I guess we are a little distracted, but hey, how else are we going to work? You know, I got to send emails. And I think today, and this may have been amplified by the pandemic, which I think made remote work induced hyperactive high mind collaboration even more hyperactive to, to a breaking point for a lot of people where, where days became just constant Zoom and email and basically no work could actually get done. There's been this market shift. And I think there's a shift because people are realizing there's huge profitability being left on the table because we're working so inefficiently. And there's a huge amount of employee dissatisfaction and turnover that we could probably sidestep if we weren't working in such a horrible context of the hive mind. So I'm very optimistic. I think something has really changed over the last few years. And then what about people who um, use emails or reply to emails in that nearly downtime of their working day where they can't actually focus anymore? They've done their deep work and now they just need to do some other work. Well, what's kind of ironic about constant emailing is that it tires out your mind to the point where all you have the energy to do is more constant emailing. So it almost reminds me of of a really clever parasite from out in nature or something like this. Um, But the way I see it is there's deep work to do. So there's hard things you're concentrating really hard on. There's administrative work that needs to be done. And I got to talk to some people and arrange for some things. But that administrative work, the arranging things, talking to people really shouldn't be an activity that takes up most of your day. I think in my perfect world, the workday would be a little bit more finite and more discreet. You have one or two sessions on something deep. There'd be some administrative work. There'd be some downtime. You know, we would slow things down, do fewer things, but do those things at a higher level of quality, have less need to keep context shifting, be much more sequential, do one thing till it's done and then move on to the next. That is a world of work I think is going to be much more compatible with the human brain than what we do now, which is have this persistent, concurrent online chatter happening at all moments. You have to try to do at the same time as anything else that's going on. Oh, and also we'll overload everyone with too much work. Uh, We have not yet created a work environment that's really compatible with the way the human brain best operates. Let's crystal ball gaze for a minute, Cal. So let's say we instigate these changes to our workflows. How do you think our work lives are going to change? We're going to be less anxious. First of all, I I think we underestimate degree that this background hum of anxiety that so many office workers feel is actually our brain rebelling against an unnatural mode of operation. So we're we're, going to feel calmer. We're going to produce much more high quality results at a much higher level of quality. Because if you can actually work on something without having to 
context shift continually in the background, it literally makes you smarter. You, you, suddenly, the quality of your prose, the quality of your ideas, the strength of your, your new business proposal is going to be much better than it had been before. So we're going to see a, a market increase, I think, in the both the quantity and quality of the actual needle-moving work output that comes out. We'll probably have less employee turnover. And I think alternative or flexible working arrangements like remote work, like reduced hour work weeks, these are all going to be much more successful because when you have a much more structured way of working with people, it's more conducive to alternative arrangements of where and when people actually work. So I think there's a lot of positives that would come with this. Beautiful. Thanks so much, Cal. Well, I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Cal Newport. And Cal's book is A World Without Email, Reimagining Work in the Age of Overload. If you enjoyed this show, you might want to check out our interviews with Nir Isle, where he talks about taking control of technology to become indistractable. The truth of the matter is that what I learned in my five years of research studying distraction is that distraction is not just about what is happening outside of us. It's not just about the pings and dings and rings. It's about what is happening inside of us. If we don't understand the discomfort we are trying to escape with distraction, we will always get distracted by one thing or another. And so that's why time management is pain management. Nia has practical tips on time boxing, hackbacks for emails and meetings, and explains why to-do lists don't work. Just scroll back through our podcast feed to July 2020. And while you're there, leave us a review. We love to know what you think. This Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next week, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.